0: Welcome to the Green Alliance podcast. We're the charity and think tank all about achieving ambitious leadership for the environment. In this episode, we'll be bringing you the highlights of one of our recent online events, focused on whether the UK should extend the transition period for the sake of the environment. During this one hour discussion, we were joined by an expert panel, Jill Rutter, David Baldock, and Maria Lee who reflected on the current state of the negotiations between the UK and EU and discussed what needs to be done before the end of the transition period to ensure the environment remains protected and what the consequences would be of not reaching an agreement before the deadline. Tune in to this fascinating discussion to hear more.
1: Welcome to this Greener UK event on what ending the Brexit transition period on the 31st of December with or without a deal will mean for the environment. My name is Sean Spears, Chair of Green UK, and I'll be steering the discussion. Yesterday, Karen Fairbairn, Director General of the CBI, wrote about the air of resignation surrounding the Brexit talks. And it is remarkable, even given COVID-19, how little attention the talks are getting from MPs and the wider public. We do indeed seem resigned to accept whatever outcome the negotiators arrive at. To be clear, this debate is not about Brexit. Brexit is and dusted. It's a debate about whether we finally leave the EU ambit with a deal, what sort of deal we get and whether we have institutions in place across the UK to ensure that environmental rules are upheld. All this has huge implications for environmental law, farming in the countryside, marine conservation, chemical safety, climate action and much else. With us to debate these questions we have three experts. Jill Rutter, uh, a senior research fellow at the think tank UK and Changing Europe and a former senior civil servant f- with posts in the Treasury, Number 10 and DEFRA. David Baldock is a senior fellow and former executive director of the Institute for European Environmental Policy, IEP, and a, a member of the Greener UK board. And Maria Lee is professor of law at University College London, focusing on environment law. And I'd like to start by asking... Jill, if you could set out the wider context of the negotiations. Green UK is obviously trying to land some points about the environment, just as the CBI and the TUC are trying to land some points about the economy. But the government seems absolutely committed to ending the transition on the 31st of December, come what may. What's driving them?
2: We're currently in round four of the talks. That's happening this week. There are a lot of sessions scheduled on what is called level playing field which is where the environment those provisions come into the negotiations the government i think has taken the view that it's got to get brexit done politically it sets a big store behind ending the transition at the end of the year they have said that they want the regulatory flexibility that will give the ability to conclude new trade deals which they can negotiate but can't conclude while the UK is still in transition. They've also said that they are worried about potential liability to any future EU COVID bailout beyond that, although that was uh, brushed aside last week at the Institute for Government when Barnier's spokesman, Stefan de Rink, said the UK would negotiate a one-off lump sum in a transition and wouldn't be, uh, have open-ended liabilities. And I think political momentum is there. They also, I think, think that if they agree a transition, that doesn't make it any quicker to conclude a deal, that it will take the foot off the pedal and all you will get in an extension is basically a sort of fallow period where everybody goes back and concentrates on dealing with Covid and things like that, and that they would find themselves in exactly the same position as they do now, with big ideological differences between the two sides in a year's time or in two years' time, if they went for the two-year transition. The problem, of course, is that the provision in the withdrawal agreement to ask for an extension terminates at the end of this month. The Institute for Government produced a paper last week called Securing More Time, which looked at other options if both sides decided later that they might want a bit of extra time for negotiation, implementation or ratification, and concluded that actually, if you lose this easy option, it's extraordinarily complicated. It would be tantamount really to negotiating another separate international agreement with the EU. The EU would have to find a treaty base to do it. The Article 50 treaty base is probably no longer available, has been turned off at the end of that period.
1: Thanks, Gill. So I wonder if you could just cast a bit of light on the issue specifically about environmental standards, because The government's made great play of its commitment to high environmental standards. There's lots of very good stuff in the manifesto. It's kind of quite clear that a lot of the ministers we're dealing with are very sincere about their commitment to the environment. And they've kind of almost promised non-regression. They've said our standards will be as good or better than they were when we were in the EU. But there is an absolute refusal to talk about non-regression in legal terms, let alone a level playing field. And I wonder if you see some sort of bridge specifically on the environment between what the EU wants, which is no environmental dumping, and what the UK wants, which is regulatory freedom but strong environmental standards.
2: I think actually one of the things that's quite interesting in these EU negotiations is that there are areas where the two sides find it relatively easier to agree on substance than on principle. And the environment is one of those. I mean, the UK has said we want the freedom to diverge upwards that from the EU point of view is not a problem. They're worried about the UK leading a race to the bottom and forcing their standards down if the UK has very good market access. But the the principle that the UK is saying is basically you shouldn't do a special case for us. We're actually just another sovereign nation like Canada-Japan. So they've lifted the provisions out of the Canada deal on environment and social protections, which are quite weak commitments. They're basically saying, trust us on this, we'll meet our international commitments, we're going to be a high standards thing, don't you understand we're going to be a high standards country? What they don't want is what the EU want, which are firm commitments. Uh, Michael Gove has hinted he'll accept non-regression, though that's not in the UK draft at the moment. But the EU proposal does two things, one of which it proposes a ratchet, which David Frost, the UK's chief negotiator, explained at some length in the Lords, which means that if both sides raise their standards from where they are at the end of the transition, then the UK could not reduce back below the new EU standard if that is slightly below the UK standard or below the UK standard if that's higher than the EU one. The other thing they don't want is they don't want the EU's proposals on enforcement. The EU wants breach of environmental standards not meeting up to those commitments to be subject to dispute resolution mechanism the uk is saying these sorts of things aren't subject to dispute resolution mechanisms in other trade agreements they're not in your canada agreement so we don't want it to be subject to dispute resolution what we'll do is if you're worried about something we'll have a chat in the joint committee and see what we do i think there's an area where on substance the two sides aren't necessarily very par- part on the actual what the standards look like But on the principles, they're miles apart, and that's what could scupper a deal.
1: Now to David, and and moving on from Jill's last point about the potential for a deal being scuppered. If there isn't a deal, or if there's only a very shallow deal, what what will be the consequences of that for the environment? Well, let me start giving you a little sketch
3: of the kind of deal which would be helpful for the environment. It would be a deal which, on the one hand encouraged and built trust. So there could be active cooperation around what uh, the standards are in the UK and in Europe and in our joint management of uh, transboundary issues, oceans and air pollution, climate change, and cooperation at a global level as well. The UK and the EU are very important players in Uh, A number of the negotiations going on right now uh, around biodiversity, climate change, and the UK is hosting uh, COP26 next year um, in partnership with the Italians. So we need, just to start with, a high level of cooperation and trust to make that relationship work. Then at a second level, we need a number of quite concrete things. Jill's mentioned non-regression, and however that's achieved, Both sides need to be confident that that is is part of a deal. And we need a number of quite specific things. Uh, For example, a commitment to sustainability in the exploitation of fish. We we don't have a clear sense of how chemicals will be regulated. Uh, And in fact, probably from an environmental point of view, this is an area where we need alignment uh, and, and quite concrete forms of agreement. So all that's up in the air and at the moment I think the danger for the environment is that we may not get to that place of both trust, cooperation and practical agreements. We have the danger also that there could be a rushed and compressed deal towards the end of the year and that means that non-economic issues are more likely to be squeezed. Um, So some of the environmental issues which are not perhaps critical to some of the negotiators we squeezed out. Less room for civil society to participate or offer any sort of opinion, and indeed less chance for public scrutiny generally. Also some confusing messages about whether the US is more important than the EU. And in environmental terms, the EU is a very great deal more important than the US in terms of our future. And then finally... There's questions about whether the UK is really prepared for the sort of post-transition period in environmental terms. For example, we haven't really got the domestic ETS system fully up and running. It's not clear whether it will be by the end of the year, and we certainly haven't got the new environmental legislation in place, which I think Maria's going to talk about
1: later. If I can turn now to Maria and, and ask a question less about no deal than about assuming that the transition period ends on the 31st of December as the government plans. Will we have suitable environmental governance in place eh, across the UK to uphold environmental laws?
4: As things stand, the simple answer is no. Getting straight to the point, the Environment Bill that's before the Westminster Parliament will not fill the governance gap. And the governance gap fundamentals exist across the United Kingdom and there are no solutions in place in any parts of the United Kingdom. So that's the situation we're in now. And urgency is not good for lawmaking so that urgency that we're faced with is not good for scrutiny but let's assume that the environment bill isn't openly abandoned or openly weakened at least three key governance issues need improving and this will apply across the united kingdom with different details first the target setting framework in the Environment Bill allows for regression and it completely fails to structure itself around environmental progress, which it could do. Second, the environmental principles will not have the legally binding pervasive effect that they have in EU law. And third, the Office for Environmental Protection could be something very, very special, but it could be a massive distraction if it is not sufficiently active and it might be inactive for a number of reasons at the moment.
1: Th- thanks, Maria. And I know your, your current research is on how well environmental groups are using environmental law. We've got quite used to going to Brussels to to fight our battles. Are we equipped in every nation of the of the UK to, to fight those battles post the transition period?
4: The simple answer, but I'll give you the long answer. There are lots and lots of examples of really skilled, really sophisticated, usually collaborative uses of law to make the case for environmental protection. There's lots and lots and lots of that. But as a sector, I think the role of law is somewhat undervalued and Less well understood
0: than it might be.
1: Sarah, you've been looking at the, the, the questions. What have you got?
0: We know environmentalists are very concerned around the potential impacts of what a US deal could mean for the environment, and perhaps having an extension would have implications for the order and sequencing of which these deals are agreed. So, what do panelists think about that?
1: Thanks, Sarah. And I, and I guess that if the transition period ends without a deal anyway, and UK goes on to so-called WTO terms it makes it the urgency of getting a US deal becomes that much that much greater. David do you want to kick off with a response? One of
3: the difficulties of the US deal is that the current regime in Washington is not um, noted for its enthusiasm for the environment and we've, we've already seen quite a bit of discussion about the place, for example, of climate change in a deal with the U.S. Uh, I think the U.K. would like to see references to climate change and quite some definitive ones in in a deal. The the U.S. doesn't want this. So in many respects, it would be much better for the uh, U.S. deal not to be pushed through at this moment, a kind of sort of heated discussion in the U.S. antipathy to to Paris and, and done at a slower pace Firstly, after the deal with the EU is done and after the presidential election in November.
1: As I can ask Jill, Jill, uh, Green UK and I think all the member groups in Green UK have pretty good relations across government departments. We're even talking constructively to the Treasury these days. It's a good relationship. Mm. The, the, The one department that's been really hard to get into and to have a really constructive dialogue with has been the Department for International Trade that really wants a a US trade deal kind of come what may. Should environmentalists and should farmers be worried about prioritising a US trade deal over an EU deal?
2: Yes, I think they probably should. Whether it's objectively better for the economy and stuff like that. I mean, we've had the government's assessment which shows that actually a US trade deal doesn't do very much for the economy at all even after quite a long period. Uh, And the government was open enough to publish that assessment. They've clearly under this government, refused to publish any assessment of of an EU deal. But I think David's right. From an environmentalist point of view, the EU is going to put the biggest floor under standards, if you like. I wouldn't expect that in any other deal. Nobody else in a trade deal is going to be asking for similar provisions to the ones that the EU are keen to seek. And they're keen to seek that, particularly because the UK has been an EU member and because of geographic proximity. But we know that the big... U.S. offensive ask. In trade negotiations, talk about offensive and defensive points. The big U.S. offensive ask is on agriculture. That's what they want. That's where they've been very frustrated with the EU, with the lack of access for U.S. agriculture and the failure of the EU even to abide by a WTO judgment that on things like growth hormone, that these things are safe to eat. So I think there's a risk even if there isn't a trade deal, if the US hadn't sort of wrecked the appellate uh, procedures in the, in the WTO, they could be taking on the UK as an early battering ram into the EU market by making us sort of picking us off once we're outside the EU. as a bit of a test case about standards, anyway. But I think clearly the farmers are very worried about the consequences of a US deal, but also potential deals with others if you look at australia if you look at new zealand other potential candidates for early trade deals they also basically are agricultural exporters and that is the sort of area they will want access so i think uh, i think from an environmental point of view and from a farm industry point of view doing the eu first is better of course if we extend the transition you could make more progress in negotiating deals with other countries but you can't finalise them because one of the conditions of being in transition is we can negotiate, but we can't sign other trade deals until we've actually formally exited transition.
0: Jill alluded to the fact that climate change is perhaps being caught in the crossfire of sort of broader political disagreements. But we had a question in about how could a poor deal or no deal at all impact the UK's ability to tackle climate change and increase ambition and and particular advocacy efforts ahead of COP26 next year.
2: The UK has always actually had relatively ambitious domestic policies on climate change. So I think formally losing that part of uh, in a trade deal, I'm not sure we need a trade deal to force us to do things on climate change and led the way on various things on that. I think the interesting impact, though, is what's the impact of if we have a disruptive no-trade deal exit. There's going to be some disruption anyway, even with the sort of deal that Boris Johnson wants with the EU. But if we have the economy taking multiple hits, I think the interesting question is actually what pressures does that put on government? Does it go faster in accelerating a green recovery Or does it mean that it actually looks at ways of alleviating costs, postponing things and stuff like that? Because the one thing you know that a disruptive no deal exit would do, or indeed the transition to the Johnson deal, then is take an economic hit. So I think it's mainly through that effect. The other thing I think, as David said, is they need to be doing massive international diplomacy in the run up to the COP. That's been quite stymied at the moment just by the preoccupation with COVID, but also the fact that nobody can do any of that sort of face-to-face diplomacy that the French did huge amounts of in the run-up to their COP. So I think there is a problem of being perceived to be a sort of bit of an international pariah if you're then trying to sort of lead the world to a new future. And I think that would be quite difficult and you'd have a very preoccupied government that doesn't have a lot of natural allies to bring with it, and it will need to be cooperating very closely with the EU, who are our closest allies on climate change, if we're going to get anywhere there.
1: Thanks, Jill. And, and E3G have just produced a very good paper making the case that the UK and the EU really need to be working together to ensure a successful. COP26. And, and at the moment, there seems to be such bad blood between them, particularly on this issue in the negotiations, that it that it seems to be risking that. I don't know if, if David or Maria, you, either of you want to comment further on this, and, and David perhaps also on the ETS, because I think that's going to increase the costs of decarbonisation, as I understand it.
3: Yes, and I think, and I agree with what Jill said entirely. At a more kind of operational level, It's important to maintain cooperation in running the energy supply system on both sides of the channel, not least if we want a more ambitious uh, development of renewables because with increasing share of renewables on the grid, there is an issue of intermittency and therefore needing a broader base of of supplies you can possibly get. A more linked-up system is better. allows you to have more renewables more cheaply. Therefore, the UK has got a particularly strong interest, you know, if we want to have a renewables-based economy and having a very connected set of systems. Therefore, we do want cooperation around energy policy and around some disciplines that go without the connectors working. And it does make sense for us, as well as the EU, to have the same carbon price so that that we don't get perverse investments moving around to, to take advantage of lower prices. Uh, we very much need that for sort of post-COVID recovery. And as part of that, if the UK is having a separate ETS, which is the proposal about emissions trading system from from the EU, we do need those two systems to be aligned, if possible, working the same carbon price, giving the same message, uh, both to industry and to suppliers. So... Actually, in operational terms, in making a kind of green recovery, a longer term renewables future work, we need some quite practical (laughs) cooperation around the, you know, around our proximity.
4: It's precisely this point that our domestic systems are more important in the absence of collaboration with the European Union. So our domestic systems need to be much, much improved, very, very quickly. That's not easy and scrutiny goes missing in cases
0: of urgency.
1: Sarah, more questions?
0: I just I got a question ahead of time about what progress needs to be made to ensure that the environmental principles will be applied consistently and robustly across the UK. So I wonder whether Maria could say something on that one.
1: Yeah, that, Maria, and also the across the UK... Aspect, because as I understand it, each administration is going to come up with its own version of the environmental principles.
4: Yeah, and the environmental principles are not a single thing. They are global phenomena that are understood and used differently in all jurisdictions. In the EU, they are crucially legal principles and they are pervasive and systemic. There is no sign anywhere in the United Kingdom that that will be replaced ever let alone in time for leaving the transition period so so if we look at the environment bill specifically and i know that the other nations are saying they're going to do a better job than that although we haven't seen which better job they're going to do yet if we look at the environment bill specifically it is extraordinarily weak it leaves the meaning of the principles in the hands of the Secretary of State, not in the hands of the courts, as they are at the moment. So the meaning of the principles is in the hands of the Secretary of State, with few constraints on what they mean. And even then, they are simply things that ministers only, not everybody, must have regard to in making policy. So there's very little for us to get our hands around with respect to the principles. I cannot, to be perfectly honest, imagine simple amendments to the bill that would make the principles work. I I really think that battle has been lost. All that we need to be clear on is that this is not equivalent to what we had
1: before. So come what may, on the 1st of January next year, none of the countries of the UK will have adequate environmental governance in place and none of them will have an inadequate set of environmental principles. Is that what you're saying?
4: Something miraculous might happen between now and then, but as things stand, no.
0: A question we got in advance was just, will fish derail
2: everything? The political declaration, which was the thing that was signed up to alongside the withdrawal agreement back in October, said both sides would use their best endeavors to do a deal on fish by the end of this month. I think both sides have now said they don't think they are going to do that. But this is one of the it's one of the areas where at the moment they are completely miles apart. Um, Michel Barnier and the Commission asked for a mandate that would give them some degree of flexibility on fish to move away from the shares currently fixed as now by the CFP. Member states refused to do that. He went back to fisheries ministers last week. They told him to stick with his current mandate. He spoke to eight fisheries countries because obviously the interests in a fishing deal are very specific to individual countries. Unfortunately, those are quite some big players and clearly any deal has to be agreed unanimously in the EU. The UK basically offers four pages of text, which they say is based on the Norway agreement. And just says we'll negotiate every year as an independent coastal state, and we're not giving you any assurances beyond that. So at the moment, it looks like a complete standoff on fish. Fish is a trivial part of the UK economy, it's a trivial part of the EU economy, but it is sort of totemic, and both sides say they will potentially walk away if there is no decent deal on fish.
1: So I'm going to ask each panellist just to have a really snappy answer to this next question before we round up. And, and I just want to say to ask Jill first, then David, then Maria, are we going to get a deal? And should we be, as environmentalists, optimistic about the deal we're going to get and the brave new world we're going to enter on the 1st of January next year?
2: No idea whether we'll get a deal or not. We asked a bunch of academics. Most of them thought with no transition there'd be, be no deal. I'd be slightly more optimistic But actually, I think environmentalists are focusing in absolutely the wrong place if they obsess about, you know, the only way we can save the environment is through the deal with the EU. If the environment becomes something we're only looking after because we were forced into some compliance in an EU trade deal, you're on the back foot immediately, everybody hates it or whatever, there are huge opportunities to bring this back home Yeah, this is a nation that I think is very pro-environment. We, I think, have suffered from seeing high environmental standards as an EU imposition. So I think you guys ought to now actually be seeing the fact that this is domestic legislation. These are domestic actions. It's not done somewhere away from that in Brussels and use that to mobilize and drive the UK to be an environmental leader.
3: Um, I don't know if we'll get a deal either. I take Jill's point that we very much need to feel that the UK is a sort of proud and effective environmental actor, but it has to act that way too. And that means that we've got to get the kind of foundations in place. And a lot of what we've been talking about today is linked to an EU deal. It's really about a new set of foundations in the UK as well, which we can all believe in and feel are, are the right basis for going forward and that includes things like in, in the trade bill and having some ability to look at the environmental aspects of, of of government policy across the piece.
4: So you're not likely to end on an optimistic note if you end with me. So <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. And so also no idea whether we'll get a deal although I doubt we'll get a, a good sophisticated well scrutinized highly participative deal and the energetic impetus at the domestic level. I agree with Jill, that's a really important point. The the thing I, I, I would say to focus on now is the degradation of our institutions. Environmental law, environmental governance is part of and is underpinned by democracy. It is underpinned by people. It isn't something that's done to people. And so if we focus on the broader institutions of democracy as well as specific environmental governance principles that we need to put in place that is a crucial thing for the next generation.
1: Thanks Maria and and whether this is an optimistic note or not I think the last hour has shown that these things still matter and there are still really important battles to be fought over the manner in which we end the transition period and fully exit the, the European Union and they're as important now as they were a year ago so we need to raise the profile and get it right and improve the bills and improve the governance across all four nations of the UK.
0: Thank you for listening to the Green Alliance podcast. Our podcast is now available to stream on Spotify, as well as other major streaming services. Stay tuned for another expert discussion. Make sure you subscribe in your favourite podcast app to get our next episode automatically. In the meantime, send us your thoughts on what you've just heard. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Green Alliance UK.